So here's the number. 815-314-0363. What I invite you to do from your homes is text in any question that you have on God, following Jesus, Christianity, fellowship of faith, this first wave campaign that we're talking about, the wrestling and intersection of life and reality and God's fiber in the universe, anything goes. Questions that you're embarrassed to ask, questions that you don't know who to ask, questions that you've never felt like you've gotten a solid answer to, questions that maybe you've been judged for asking in some other place or some other time. We believe God wants us to ask questions. He wants us to wrestle with our faith and take it seriously. And the way of Jesus is amazing, but it's often hard and confusing and messy. And we think church is supposed to be about people helping each other on this journey to follow God. And that has to root itself in being able to be open and honest about what we're thinking, struggling, and asking. So we invite you to text them in, 815-314-0363. And I can hear my iPad right over here right now dinging away, so you guys are already on it. While that is populating, guys, so many questions came in the last couple of weeks. I mean, I'm still batting cleanup from two weeks ago, um, not to mention even last week, and I don't want those to go unchecked. So as this continues to populate today, what I'm going to do is start by just batting cleanup here a little bit on questions from the prior weeks. Here's a few. <laughs> this one made me laugh. Why does God put us in unique situations like putting us with people we can't get along with, but we try to? And... Uh, <laughs> I don't know who's asking this, but I've been there. And, and, you know, the answer that always comes to mind for me when I'm wrestling with this is it's because God has a wonderful sense of humor. I am so with you. There have been people in my life that I feel like my life would have been better if I had never known them. I'm not even talking about abuse situations or things like that, but just people who I find difficult, offensive, abrasive, uncomfortable, frustrating. And I'm always struck by a passage of Jesus, especially for the people who have hurt me in some way or bother me so, in some way so much that I can't like shake them. Remember when Jesus says this, if not, read it sometime. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the whole thing is worth reading. Jesus says to his disciples, you have heard it said, love your neighbor. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. I find it so hard because I don't even want to love those I find difficult and who disagree with me, right? But I think God puts us in situations like this for a reason. Now, first, I do want to say, I don't think we should blame God for every situation we find ourselves in. I don't think God is some puppet master controlling every scenario, putting us in every relationship and situation we find ourselves in. We need to take responsibility for our own actions as well. But I do think there are times when God has orchestrated paths or God has put us into each other's lives or we find ourselves in difficult relational situations and God has a way through it and he wants us to do something specific in it. Love that person 
and pray for them. And sometimes I think the reason God doesn't let me shake just a deep, bothersome spirit towards someone, an emotional, visceral reaction, is because he actually wants me to remember that person. And I don't like him enough on my own to do it. It's almost being fueled by a spirit of unforgiveness or anger or, or distrust or, or difficulty in my own soul that forces me to remember I am supposed to pray for this person and God wants people praying for this person person. And that means me. The way of Jesus is hard. That stinks, doesn't it? That is not the answer I think any of us want, but the way of Jesus is hard. And I think it's what he calls us to. And sometimes I wonder if that's simply what he's up to. Great question, and thanks for asking. How about this? Two questions back to back, very related. I'll read them both. Number one, Why does God's judgment ultimately matter? If Jesus paid it all for everyone and all sins were nailed to the cross with him, what's the point? Question two is related. If repenting results in Christ casting my sins into, quote, the sea of forgetfulness, we got a poet on our hands out there, are they recounted in the day of judgment? If so, then what? Let me talk to you a little bit about the idea of judgment, particularly in light of the freedom we find in Christ. Sometimes I think we put the cart before the horse, fixating so much on the fact that Jesus died for our sins that we forget we will be held accountable for our sins. And there's no getting around this one in the biblical witness. All of us, Christian, non-Christian, righteous, wicked, good, bad. I don't care who you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care your background. I don't care. All of us, according to the Bible, will stand before the judgment seat of God on the last day. And on that day, all of us will give an account for the quality of our lives before him. Jesus dying for us or not does not remove that situation. That still stands, and it stands because God is just, because God is good, because God looks at this world and say, things matter, and what we do matters. Our actions have consequences that often have far-reaching effects, both good and bad, beyond whatever we would dream a simple thing alone would do. And God, being good and just, holds the world to account. But see, the good news of Jesus is that because he died for us, we have one advocating for us on judgment day. One who stands before the Father saying, these sins have been paid for. No punishment for these sins remains because Jesus took the punishment for us. Because God is just. The punishment is still meted out, just not on us. So it should move us to be grateful, humble, and stand in awe of what God did for us and what Jesus will continue to do for us on Judgment Day. Now, there was a second question about mentioning the sea of forgetfulness. I just want to step away a little bit from the metaphorical way of stating this because sometimes I think we take the metaphorical a little too literally. 
And we kind of start imagining God like some doddering old man who just kind of forgets that our actions were before us. No, when the Bible talks about God forgetting, it means he treats us in a way as though they've never happened. God knows, God remembers, God is not senile. But he doesn't hold them against us. Isn't that amazing that someone who actually, in fact, does remember still treats us with unconditional love despite that? Hopefully that's helped you navigate the journey a little bit more, and I want to add one more log to the fire. We always think about Judgment Day as a negative thing, but do you wrap your mind around the fact that on Judgment Day, God is giving reward and praising the positive as well? No one can merit the love of God the salvation of God or the forgiveness of God by the quality of their life. No, this is given freely by him. But now that we follow God, well, let me put it this way. There's a job evaluation at the end of the day. You stand before the Lord and he looks at the good that you've done in his name. He looks at the sacrifices that you've made. He looks at the suffering that you've endured for him. He looks at the things that you have done for other people. And it brings him joy and it brings him brings him gladness. It makes him proud. And he acknowledges that on that day. I kind of think of a, a kid coming home from school, bringing the A-plus home on the paper, or even a B, or whatever it might be. And mom and dad smiling over it and affirming it. I even think of the kid bringing home the D or the F they gave it their all and they come and they bring it and that mom or dad loving that child so much affirming it and who they are in it welcome to just a little bit of a picture of judgment day let's keep moving here here's another one from two weeks ago why don't dreams seem to matter as much these days as they did in biblical times and is the skill of dream interpreting a thing of the past? You know, the best way I think I can answer this question is to say that I suspect you are coming from a very middle-class American 21st century perspective. Because the reality is around the world and Christianity outside of our way of expressing it here, dreams continue to have huge import, especially in the Middle East. The amount of people who I've talked to that come from Middle Eastern cultures that came to Christ because of a vision or a dream is astounding. See, God has a way of speaking to us in a way that we're positioned for and that we understand. And in many cultures of the world, there's still a value and a weight given to vision and dreams that we have kind of dismissed here in Western culture today. No, it is still happening today. And as far as the skills to interpret dreams, you know, what I would just simply say is that when you see the scriptural witness, God gives the interpretation to prophets in people among his body, to bring wisdom to it. It's not like it's some class you have to go take or some secret wisdom you have to unearth. When God chooses to reveal what a dream is about, he'll do so, 
so I wouldn't get so hung up about trying to sift your dreams and find the secret hidden message of God tucked within them. Let him just impact you and come to you if he chooses so in that way. Here's the final one from two weeks ago. What is God's position on gay and lesbian lifestyles? Is it biblical? Is it a sin? God's position on gay and lesbian lifestyles. I'm going to answer it both simply and then a little bit more fully. The Bible is pretty clear on this, and there's no real getting around this one. That homosexual behavior, whatever label or way you want to describe it, is seen as a sin in the pages of both the Old and the New Testament. But I want to now speak into this question because not knowing who's asking this, I want to speak to those of you who are sexually attracted to people of the same gender. The reason God is saying this is not because he's looking to torment you or not because he's trying to rob you of intimacy or closeness or friendship or, or desire. No, far from it. The reason that the Bible says these kinds of things because it shows us that God is calling us to an alternate way. Look, I can only imagine how hard this answer has to be that I'm giving. Especially when our sexual identities are so ingrained to our greater identity of who we are and the difficulty of having to struggle with being attracted or wanting something but then having the Bible say that it's off limits or a sin. I just want to encourage you in your struggle in that. To allow yourself to wrestle with God in that, especially if it's not something you want to hear. To sift out maybe not just what it says, but why it says it. And how God thinks of you, because I guarantee you're going to like where that takes you. It may be hard, but you're going to like where that takes you. Because God is calling all of us to something that he calls a different way and a better way that often challenges things that strike at our core and things that we desire. I want to spe speak to our heterosexual folks as well. The call is the same for you. The call is the same for you. Especially many of the things that we've come to embrace, sleeping with someone who's not our spouse, divorce, and so many other things. The way of Jesus is hard. Make no mistake, and I don't want to soft pedal it. But it's good. And if you're wrestling with this answer and you're wrestling in that place, dare to allow God to bring you on a journey of not just writing the answer off or taking it at face value, but digging in deeper to its implications. And here at Fellowship of Faith, we'd love to help you on that journey if we can. Now, last week, a different question came in, but it strikes me how related it is to this. How can we fight against sin when it is fighting against the very nature of who we are? Speaking about the nature of an individual and not humanity as a whole. In other words, if an individual is very sexual in nature, how do we fight that to honor God? 
oh, it's hard. But you know, the Bible is filled with this. It, it's, it's a struggle it is not unaware of. Jesus was not unaware of this struggle. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it going, that which I want to do, I do not do. That which I don't want to do, I keep on doing. And even when I see what I don't want to do, I kind of want to do it. And the things that I know I'm supposed to want, I really don't want them. He'll talk about how we're at war with each other. There's conflict in our soul, and we've all faced this. The conflict in our soul, feeling ourselves pulled apart in two different ways. Welcome to human nature. There's no getting around it. It's what it means to be a human being since the time of Adam and Eve, and especially in the world today. But the good news is this. God promises a spirit. God promises victory. Let me read a passage to you today, and I really encourage those of you who are struggling with this to read this on your own. It comes from Romans chapter 6, and look at what it says. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You following the logic here? God's grace covers our sin. So it would stand to reason that if we sin more, we get more grace. Let me ask you, who wants more grace, right? Do you follow the logic? We'll keep on sinning more because God pours more grace and it just makes us look better, right? And so he starts with this question, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning to get more of God's grace, to live more in God's grace, to experience more of God's grace so that it may increase? No way, he says, by no means. We died to sin, How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we were united with him in death, we'll be united with him in resurrection. And if we died with Christ, we will also live with him. So in the same way, count yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. That as hard as it is, that as much as it wars against us, as much as we feel the conflict, we are not a victim to it. That God gives you his spirit. And through that, he can give you victory over whatever desire, stronghold, sin, or insurmountable thing that you constantly fall prey to. You can have victory over it. Addicts, for hundreds of years, have been finding victory over their sin in Christ. People with the deepest behavioral tendencies towards violence and greed have been finding victory over sin in their life in Christ. People who struggle sexually have been finding victory. Victory over sin and temptation in their life. Oh, make no mistake. It's hard and we struggle and we fall and you will, I'm sure, many times again. But never let that plant the lie that this is a hopeless affair and that you're a victim to it. Thanks for asking. Let me ask one more. Let me uh, answer one more from last week. Changing gears a little bit. Who is the first person baptized at Fellowship of Faith? I had to look this one up. 
Fellowship of Faith began in 1999. I was not a part of the church yet. I came in 2003. So we did a record search, and we came up with a double header. Two people baptized on the same day, and I don't know which of these was baptized first, but on July 30th in the year 2000, Garrett Gilland and Gina Wagner were the first two baptized that day. Garrett and Gina, you can kind of duke this one out to see who gets like the gold and who gets the silver um, and go from there. It may have happened before that. We just can't find a record of it. So that's what we have as the first. I can tell you the first person I baptized, though, in 2003, it was Abby Wykowitz, who's now named Abby Odell, who actually is my niece. So rock on there. All right? Great question. Now let me turn to some that are coming in today. Okay, here's a question on the renovation. How long would the renovation take? Right now, both the architect and the construction management firm is telling us 10 to 12 weeks. And this is in part why we don't want to delay, especially during the shelter-in-place time and especially during the summer months when the rock doesn't meet. The more that we can get ahead of the game now, the better and less disruptive it will be. And that's why we're having the meeting on July 19th. Our board of directors wrestled with this. Do we wait? Do we get back to normal first? Do we wait for the fall? And it just felt like it was causing more disruption by doing it. And they said, look, we've been talking about doing a building project. The congregation wants it. We're poised to do it. The congregation came together. We're loving each other. We're helping those in need right now. We're set for that. So let's Let's do this and let's stop waiting. So 10 to 12 weeks is what they're anticipating. That's after the steel orders and fabrications get done, which are already kind of underway now. Um, but yeah, thanks for asking. How about this? I recently heard a bibli- uh, uh, excuse me, I recently heard a blurb online that said biblical justification for the Trinity is based solely on a particular interpretation of the Johannine comma. Is that true? Could you expound on that a little bit? No, um, you heard wrong. The biblical justification for the Trinity is not solely founded on the Johannine comma. And if you're wondering what on earth is the Johannine comma, I just encourage you to read John chapter 1. It's this cool opening intro to John's gospel. And it drips with explicit claims of the divinity of Christ. Within there, there is one particular place, particularly 1 verse 18, that depending where you put a comma, which would not have been in original texts, because original texts do not use punctuation at all, would determine it. But this is not the basis for the Trinity. The basis for the Trinity is something far deeper. It's that these three realities drip off the page of Old and New Testament alike. Let me just take Jesus. A, that Jesus is God. And it's not just statements or proof texts that say Jesus is God, but Jesus constantly does in the Gospels what Yahweh does. Jesus claims to be one with Yahweh. Jesus claims to act with the authority of Yahweh. Jesus puts himself in the place of Yahweh, particularly in things that only Yahweh should be doing. And Jesus, on top of that, claims it left and right. So 
No, it's, it's all over the place. But that Jesus is not the Father. There is some distinction or separation between him and another aspect of Yahweh called Father. But despite this distinction, they are one. Take that paradox, those three truths, and you can apply the same to the Holy Spirit that are all over the pages of the Bible, and that is really what the basis of the Trinity is all about. Hey, so when does Bible boot camp registration open? Hey, I'm glad you asked. Bible boot camp registration opens today. Hop on our website, fellowshipoffaith.org. Go to the children's ministry page and you will see a big red registration button. Registration opens now. It goes all week. Just a reminder, reminder, Bible Boot Camp runs July 13th through the 16th. It is a virtual Bible Boot Camp, but the information pickup is next Saturday and Sunday. We really encourage you parents to come out next Saturday here to FOF to just do a drive-by anytime between the hours of 10 and 2 to get all the supplies and things you'll need to do Bible boot camp virtually at home, though they will be available on Sunday as well. But hey, don't delay. Register today because we got to get this stuff ready. And dang, if 8,000 people show up next week and we haven't cut everything out yet, well, Gwen ain't going to be happy, all right? So make Gwen happy, register ASAP. How about this? Um, you know, in the spirit of just taking the questions that come, forgive me if I am messing up the name. How do you feel about Alexis de Tocqueville, I believe is how it's pronounced? How do you feel about Alexis de Tocqueville, his views on Christianity and American democracy? I got to tell you, I'm unfamiliar with it, so maybe uh, shoot me a link of something you want me to read and I can take it from there. All right. Someone else asked about Bible boot camp registration. It opens today. Am I still welcome at church if I'm struggling with my faith and belief in God? You better believe it. In fact, there's no better place to be than in God's church if you're struggling with faith and belief in God. Church is not meant to be a place where perfect people gather who have it all figured out. And if that's the perception of church that you've been given, you've been fed a lie and something so far from Jesus' vision for what church is. If that's the kind of church that you've been brought up in or have had an experience being a part of, they're just not doing it the right way. You are absolutely welcome here at Fellowship of Faith. No matter what your struggle and no matter what your belief. And know even more importantly that you're always welcome in the church of God. I can't speak for every local congregation and the way they might twist it, but God's church, you better believe it. Keep tuning in. How about this? Can the coffee bar be moved further away from the bathrooms? <laughs> Grossing you out, huh? A little bit? I'm sure it could. I don't have a creative idea for practically how it might happen. 
not only because there's some permanent construction that would be very disruptive, but it's also where our plumbing comes in and we don't want to jackhammer the whole floor and run trenches to get our water lines. But hey, if you've got some creative suggestions, we are always welcome to hear those kinds of things. But uh, for now, just know that as soon as you drink it, you can relieve it. All right? How about this? Why does God allow bad things to happen? Ain't that the biggie? Ain't that just kind of the foundational question? Not of the Christian faith, but of life. It's often a question that divides even theists from atheists, whether you're Christian or not. There's not one answer to that. And many times there isn't a specific answer at all. You know, I can answer generally that God allows free will. So God allows us to truly make bad choices that have negative effects and he doesn't control us and the world like a computer program but gives us the dignity of freedom to let things play out. And of course, I believe that and I think there's wisdom to that. And, and I could speak, of course, about how God never intended bad things in the beginning but this is a result of sin. And that's true and I can speak into that. And while those are good foundational ideas, to root your feet in. I know it doesn't often help in a specific situation when your wife has cancer or falling prey to sin or you're just seeing horrible things happen around you. So maybe I can just approach this a slightly different way that doesn't do justice to the depth of this question, but give some foothold in the short time today. Swinging back to the judgment day question, don't think that God is turning a blind eye. He does see, and there will be a reckoning for bad things. But God is patient, and he doesn't want to condemn anyone even those who do bad things and have done bad things. And he's patient and so he delays judgment hoping that people will repent. Even the people you dislike and the people you hate. The people who are causing such harm and hurt today. Because he loves them too. And he puts a call on those of us who call ourselves by the name of Christ or Christian to be agents of his kingdom trying to counter the bad things that happen in this world and in people's lives today. Seeking to combat them with good and love and mercy and kindness and justice and compassion, forgiveness. Welcome to the call of being a Christian. Reach out to me directly if there's something very specific that you're wrestling with that I can help you through. Let's keep going. Don't we need an elevator for the loft? 
No, the good news is we don't. And that's not coming from me, that's coming from the architect, the county, and our construction management firm. Back in the day, there was a lot of talk that ADA might require us to have an elevator, and it kept us from doing the loft back in 2007 when we did our Chapter 2 campaign. But between changes in the code and the interpretations of things and, and uh, the scale and size of the loft we have, no, we don't need it at all. Second question, what will this do to the open feeling of the coffee house. You know, until it's in place, you ever have this kind of thing? You never really know quite what something is going to feel like until you get there, right? You can study it, you can look at schematics, you can dream it through. I don't really think it's going to impact the coffee house much in terms of the open sense of space. In fact, I think it's going to give it a better feeling. Because the coffee house gets to remain. Yes, we got a couple little meeting spaces that are going to kind of break out, but they're open door, they're open that you can just kind of inset in. And with the wall going up, it gives us, I think, a little bit more splash, a little bit more color. Lighting won't be affected by this in any way, nor will HVAC or comfortable factor. We're not really losing square footage in the coffee space. Some of it will just be canopied, and I'm talking like 10 feet into the coffee house side. So it really, I don't think, will be much at all, but I encourage you, maybe come to one of the living room meetings if you'd like to see it firsthand, and we can walk you through that and uh, show you, and you can kind of plant your feet there and see what it'll be like. Thanks for asking. How about this? My 14-year-old daughter doesn't believe in God because of science and evolution. Yeah, that's not uncommon. That's not uncommon at all, and uh, whether it's 14 or 18 or early 20s at that age, a lot of people start to wrestle with their faith and come across other worldviews and ideas, and I think it's just why as a parent it's so important for you to be educated in your faith, to know what you actually believe and what you don't believe, to, to sift through what Christianity does teach versus what people say it teaches and have a reasoned answer. Um, there's high stakes to that kind of stuff, and... I encourage you on that journey with her to keep talking to her and listening to her and praying for her and giving her a reason for what you believe as well. And if you don't know where to start, ask. I'll point you in some good directions. Okay, here's another one. Fire escape for the loft? Um, don't need it. Not according to the architect, not according to the construction management firm, not according to the county. Access to the loft? Yeah, of course, stairs. But given its size, it needs one mode of egress, period. Despite that, we're putting in two, but one of them's going to be a slide. So rock on there, all right? Let me leave this next one go just for a moment and bat a little more cleanup from last week. Should a Christian date a non-Christian? You know, I'm not going to give a yes or no, but I'm going to say, as a Christian, you have to be careful. Because if what you're meaning by a date is I'm just going to go out someone for one time and just enjoy their company and have a good time, and that's about all it's going to be, okay, hey, whatever. But if the real purpose of dating at some level is possibly meeting your future mate, meeting someone that you're going to share life in its deepest form with together, you know, if you're not sharing the deepest of values, the deepest of beliefs, and the deepest of things that is important to you, you're going to really struggle to find yourself on the same page. And so, by opening the door to that, just know 
You might open the door to let your heart be captured and given to someone who's amazing in this world, but that if you were to move to the point of marriage would ultimately cause a lot of hardship and heartache and division of soul because of not sharing a faith in God. How about this? Does the new logo mean we're getting new swag? Yeah, yeah, we are, we are, yeah. Thanks for asking. How about this? Was Mary Magdalene actually a prostitute? Uh, Bible actually doesn't say. Church tradition holds that she is the same woman who is um, an unnamed prostitute that you'll come across in the Gospels, but the Gospels never actually identify her explicitly as one and the same woman. So while she may have been, I don't think you can say with any ironclad, 100% certain kind of way that she, in fact, was. How about this? Why, out of all women, did God choose Mary to give birth to Jesus? I don't know. Why did God choose Abram? Who you know is Abraham? I don't know. Why did God choose the nation of Israel among all the nations of the world? I don't know. Why does God choose a lot of people for a specific purpose, time, and place? I don't know. I tend to think God does. I tend to think it's not random. He's not just like rolling the dice or a random number is kind of coming up in the cycle and, oh, hey, it's you, you know? I don't know, but, you know, see, God is kind of free to do what he wants and often he does seem to choose those who are the least of these and that would certainly describe Mary. But beyond that, I can't help you much. What's more important, I think, than figuring out why God chooses Mary or chooses you is to act on his call when he does. And Mary did. And the angel said she would become the most blessed of all women because of it. Rock on that she did. Here's one. If you're cremated, will you be able to be reincarnated when Jesus comes again? A little bit of confusion in this question because Christians don't actually believe in reincarnation, not at least in the sense that the word is really used today. Reincarnation more often today is a concept attached to Hinduism and those Eastern beliefs, which has the idea that based on the quality of your life, you'll come back in another form, in an endless cycle until you become one with the great Atman, as I remember it, um, or one with the world soul, if I can put it that way. That, that, that's not quite the same because what Christians believe in is resurrection. I guess you can say it's being reincarnated again. Your spirit's coming back into flesh again. But it's not like you're coming back as a dog or you're coming back in some different form that's ultimately different than who you are with, with some kind of like different scale of life, be it a leper or a rich man because of the quality of your deeds. No, uh, the biblical idea is that all the dead will rise in Christ, that we who die will come back physically. And yes, whether you're cremated or buried or put through a shredder, um, look, God could put the pieces back together. 
You, you don't have to worry about that. Nothing's standing against that one, all right? And the clock is my enemy, so let me just kind of back clean up on a couple of others here today. Oh, this one's getting personal. Did you yourself have sex before marriage or did you wait? Yeah, thanks for asking that one. Um, but, you know, in the spirit of this, um, we're just here to be humble and honest and forthright about our journey. And uh, both my wife, Tina, and I, and this isn't a line, we waited. That sucked. It was so hard. It was so hard. But we did. And I'd be lying to you if I said I never regretted it. There's times we kind of talk about it and go, man, do we regret what we kind of had to face? But no, I, I believe it was the way of Jesus and easier or hard, it was the thing necessary to honor him and that's what we chose to do. So there you go. Let me give one more today. Did God specifically choose Judas to betray Jesus? And if so, doesn't he get a raw deal? Is it possible if Judas hung himself, he was repentant and forgiven? Okay, first of all, let me, I'm going to start backwards on this one. If Judas hung himself and he was repentant, was he forgiven? Suicide is not an unforgivable sin. Many of you who have been with us for a time know that this is one very personal to me. My own dad committed suicide. And anyone who tells you that suicide is an unforgivable sin, A, is misunderstanding the Christian teaching on this, and B, is fundamentally selling God's grace way too short. There is no such thing as an unforgivable sin. And I know you're going to quote Mark 3 to me next, and you can do that next week. Look, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. But to the question about Judas and whether he was chosen, the real difficult thing is that the way the scriptures seem to talk about this, Peter included, like when he's kind of commenting on it, they seem to talk as though Judas was selected or chosen for this role. And I'll tell you, it's a mind blow, and there's a lot there to dig into that I just don't know how to make enough sense of in the 60 seconds I have to kind of wrap this one up today. But it's been a hard deal because it does feel like a raw deal. But, you know, it's a funny thing when you talk about election or predestination because there's a great paradox in the Bible that two things happen simultaneously. That God in his sovereignty knows what's going to happen and often orchestrates things, but nonetheless we are still free and therefore responsible for our own actions at the same time. It seems contradictory doesn't it? But it's true, two great truths that cut like two great streams or two great trunks of a tree throughout the entire biblical narrative, kind of like the Trinity, three but one, right? It's, it's paradoxical. And the real trick is getting into why the paradox exists. So I understand the wrestle. I understand where you're coming from. But whatever happened on God's side, we're often left only seeing it from our eyes. And what God says from our eyes is that we are responsible for our actions and God does not force us to sin. I hope that helps a little bit. I went long on these today. I still did not get to them all, but we're making headway. We have one more week. 
One more week of questions you never thought you could ask in church. If I did not get to your question today, I am going to do everything in my power to get to it next week, and we'll, of course, have open text in going on as well. Thank you for asking today. Thank you for your time. We hope this was helpful for you. And as always, I encourage you, don't just take my word for it. Let my word be a guide to get you thinking, to get you wrestling with it, going deeper in the journey of understanding of God's way that goes beyond what I can answer in one or two or three minutes on a day like today. We're so glad that you could be a part.